It's Friday, March 3rd, 2023. I'm Josh Rollerson, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Next week, Governor Josh Shapiro gives his first budget address to the Pennsylvania General Assembly, kicking off what promises to be one of the most interesting legislative sessions in years. For the first time since 2010, Democrats control the State House of Representatives, albeit by a razor-thin margin. Meanwhile, the GOP maintains its majority in the Senate. This year, the two parties will clash on everything from school funding to elections, along with the perennial budget battles, and of course, many environmental, energy, and climate issues near and dear to our hearts. Governor Shapiro says he's committed to building bipartisan consensus wherever possible, but with a divided legislature and an atmosphere that's as polarized as ever, are there opportunities to find common ground? One of Shapiro's predecessors has an answer to that question. Tom Ridge served as Pennsylvania's governor from 1995 to 2001, presiding over major bipartisan accomplishments on conservation, environmental policy, and support for outdoor recreation. And he did it as a popular elected Republican governor. Ridge has been an outspoken advocate ever since for the proposition that partisanship has no proper place in debates over how best to uphold Pennsylvanians' constitutional right to clean air, pure water, and a healthy environment. And it should come as no surprise that that argument has taken on new urgency in light of the growing threat posed by climate change. Over the years, former Governor Ridge has called for bipartisan cooperation on the environment in a number of essays and media appearances, including an interview on this podcast a couple of years back. And on the eve of budget season, we thought now would be an opportune moment to revisit that conversation. So here it is, my interview with former Governor Tom Ridge from May 2020. Governor Ridge, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacy. So happy to have you here. Yes, it's a great pleasure to join you and your audience. Thank you. You were a governor in Pennsylvania at a time, you know, in some ways, it doesn't seem like that long ago. In other ways, a million years ago. Uh, it was a less polarized time, a less partisan time. I think safe to say, maybe maybe you'd agree. How did we get here? How did specifically environmental issues become so political, so partisan? Well, you know, I wish I could uh, get a good answer to that question, and I don't have a good one. Um, it just seems to me that of all the issues uh, confronting uh, this country, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and the globe, one would think that preserving and protecting and hopefully even enhancing and improving the environment within which we live, the, the water we consume, the air that we breathe, I mean, it's an endless, it's a life-saving uh, focus regarding the promotion and protection of the environment. So maybe one of these days, hopefully in the not too distant future, we get back to, uh, particularly the Republicans, get back to their legacy, which was strong environmental uh, uh, protection and enhancement. You know, interesting, I don't mean to belabor the answer to the question, but there was a, a survey done, an attitude survey done in Pennsylvania by the, uh, uh, I forget what the name of the group was, but the, recently in the past week or two, it was 89% of Pennsylvania, 89% of Pennsylvanians said, we're really interested in, uh, in improving the quality of our air. A huge number, over almost two-thirds, two-thirds said, you know, we ought to be promoting sources of energy alternative that don't uh, emit uh, carbon. Uh, so I think there's a substantial foundation for dramatic and uh, 
not revolutionary change, but dramatic change in, in policy. Those numbers are striking, but you really, they, they probably shouldn't be. As you said, there is this long, proud conservative tradition in conservation uh, going way back. As somebody who identifies as a conservative, as a Republican, you know, what is the conservative basis for being a supporter of environmental policy, being a steward of the environment? Uh, where does that square with, you know, with your ideology, your way of looking at the world? Well, I think uh, you alluded to, one, if we're true to our tradition, then we do have a tradition, a legacy within the party with Roosevelt. And by the way, let's not forget that uh, Nixon. Let's not forget he EPA, this Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. These are all Republican Party initiatives. Oh, by the way, embraced by people regardless of how they're registered. When that Cayuga water was on fire in the 60s, uh, outside of Cleveland, and people said the answer to uh, pollution is not dilution. You don't throw that junk in your Great Lakes, which is, happens to have 20% of the natural fresh water in the world. We better do something about it. So I think if I'm a conservative, I also remind my colleagues not only a legacy item, but we have an individual moral responsibility mm-hmm. because if we're going to hold each other responsible and accountable to at least preserve and protect and I would argue, even enhance it. And then if you want to take a look at the economic side and say to yourself, it has drastic implications for our economy. And if you want to look at the defense side, it is what the defense community calls a threat multiplier. Climate conditions aggravate, exacerbate, and create instability, whether it's poverty, hunger, famine, et cetera, et cetera, that our military is called upon, let alone the operational challenges, rising sea levels, and and operating in these environments mean to our soldiers and sailors. So I'll give you a long list. And if yeah. that can't convince the Republicans that they ought to be doing something more boldly than they have in the past couple of years, I don't think anything will. Well, you're somebody that knows a thing or two about national defense, and I, I, I am interested in where those two issues come together for you. I would like to talk about that a bit more. But you were talking about polling, showing pro-environment sentiment among people that normally vote Republican. We've seen a lot of these polls. This is not isolated, although you wouldn't necessarily know it from following the news day to day. But, you know, we the empirical data show that people that consider themselves Republicans, conservatives, care about the environment, care about clean air, care about the climate. Where do you see that rank-and-file sentiment, if at all, reflected at the leadership level within the Republican Party? What's the what's the dynamic internally there? Well, it seems to me, at least uh, in D.C., you have uh, too many people, in my mind, mm-hmm. denying science. I mean, I didn't do all that well in my science courses, but when, uh, and again, it's like you accept what you know and look for those to inform and educate you on those things that you don't know. And it may not be universal, but I think it's about 99% of scientists who take a look at the environment today, look at uh, our air quality and say, while man is not the sole source of the challenges we have associated with the clean air, uh, it is clearly a significant, significant source. And we ought to do something about it. You can't change what mother nature is doing, but you can change your personal and, and corporate uh, and collective approach toward it. And it's it just, I don't know how people can, in this day and age, it's almost medieval to yeah. deny science. And uh, I think it's somewhat of a shameful uh, proposition. And I think we'll get back to it because I think there's an emerging, a growing foundation of support uh, within both parties, but you're talking about the Republican Party. We better do something about this. You know, I'm reminded of that 
and I use this time again, I may use it two or three times on your show, a statement attributed to Native Americans. You don't inherit the earth from your ancestors. You borrow it from your children. Right. And if you just think about that in your own personal terms, about your kids and your grandkids and future generations, you say to yourself, how in God's name can we continue to pollute the environment and feel good about the legacy we're leaving our children? And you can't feel good about the environment if you're going to ignore all the scientific concerns that have been expressed by people who are apolitical. They're concerned about the environment, period. Well, I think just about anybody will understand that intuitively, no matter where they are on the political spectrum. But somehow that doesn't always translate at the policy level. It's uh, somehow it, it gets it gets twisted in the discourse. What do you think we can do about that? How do we get past this sort of dichotomy, this this partisan framing and identify common ground where people can work together for a better, healthier environment, regardless of you know what their other political beliefs may be? Well, I think there are groups uh, emerging that have pre-existed and are now emerging in uh, communities and states uh, and even nationally that are beginning to have a greater impact on the on the uh, on the political environment. And I just think they have to sustain uh, their commitment to this cause. And I think, frankly, at some point in time, they need. And some of them are beginning to vote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, ultimately, you can. Uh, you can choose our leaders. So sustaining and raising the the decibel level, perhaps you see the growing trend of embracing this notion of cleaner air. It's rather dramatic change. If you take a look at the survey results over the past five or 10 years, people, the individual citizens are becoming more and more cognizant of how perilous it is to continue down this path. And they're just asking, they're just citizens are just asking for reasonable, responsible change. I mean, let's, I'm an all in person. I want, you know, you're not going to get clean at, uh, you're not going to get rid of coal right away. Uh, and you're not going to, but nuclear plants are being shut down over time, but I'm a big nuclear fan. So I'm saying, let's just be smart about promoting alternative sources of energy. And we'll be happy 20 or 30 years from now that we did because it'd be a lot cleaner. And by the way, if you take a look at some of the, the uh, photographs, taken during this COVID pandemic globally where communities have shut down or practically transportation shut down and see the differences in the air quality over major urban areas. And you don't have to be a scientist to say, hmm, I can put two and two together. Uh, we are, humans are responsible for a lot of this. And when we change our conduct, our air quality gets better. Let's focus on climate. There is this frame again that there's some essential conflict between making progress on energy policy say and economic prosperity and you've made the case pretty eloquently that you know we we need to do these things regardless right for you know for the sake of clean air for the sake of the climate but putting on your i, I don't know like economic development hat can you make a case for innovating energy production, moving toward cleaner energy sources, decarbonizing our electricity sector, just based on economics, just based on the potential for, you know, innovating our economy, creating jobs, growing our tax base, and all, all those kinds of things. Is there is there something there? Yeah, I do think there's something there because I think uh, adverse climate conditions have uh, enormous economic impact. 
look what uh, drought uh, will do to uh, and has begun to do impact on uh, the central states uh, with regard to uh, agriculture. Look what severe weather does to uh, agriculture. Look at just the broader economic impact of uh, climate change, I think, on individual businesses. And again, I want to make the economic case. I also want to make the moral case. Right. Uh, and I think it's the two go hand in hand. And there is an economic impact. We have to realize it on severe weather. There is an economic impact. How about medical impact? Can't tell me there are not a lot of people suffering from lung disease and asthma because it's been demonstrated in by science because of polluted air. It's in the agriculture. It's an additional medical expense. Uh, and the list goes on and on there. But it's also a moral imperative. We have a responsibility to future generations, and shame on us if we don't accept it. And I think that is very much part of the Republican creed, an individual responsibility, individual accountability. It's just like sometimes you just keep borrowing. For me, it's like borrowing a certain point in time where you just keep borrowing and borrowing instead of taxing. Right. You're just passing the cost of today's government onto future generations. It's irresponsible and shameful, and one could even argue immoral, to pass on the cost associated with a, an environment that you have denigrated, you have ignored, onto future generations. It's not yours to abuse, it's yours to use, and then pass it on to your kids. When you look at Pennsylvania's history as an energy producer, and where we're at at this moment as we're transitioning to a different kind of a future different ways of using energy. Where do you see opportunity for Pennsylvania to to be a leader in that space again, the way we have in the past, moving forward on energy and clean energy and climate? I think uh, if we were just said to ourselves, we have multiple sources of energy, both clean and not so clean in Pennsylvania. And let's be proportionate in our support of alternative forms of energy, period. I mean, I just... I don't think you select right now one over another, but with a growing desire and focus by individual citizens on clean air, it would be wise, not just politically, but just wise in terms of your stewardship, your guardianship as an elected official and your responsibility to take that approach, period. I want to go back to something you raised earlier. You know, in Pennsylvania, we know you as our former governor. Outside of Pennsylvania, people are going to recognize your name for your time in the Bush administration and Homeland Security. Where does that experience inform your views on the environment, on air quality, on climate, and all the things you've been talking about? Did those connect together? Did you get any uh, insights from your time in Homeland Security that inform how you think about these things now? Well, I wouldn't, Josh, I wouldn't say the insights were formed necessarily by responsibility I had as DHS secretary, but interaction with the military community writ large over the years has had a much more, uh, much more direct impact on when I think about this. And, you know, the military DOD has, has a quadrennial review and in the past decade plus uh, they've talked about climate change as a threat multiplier. They've talked about how climate change affects their ability to protect and defend the United States and its interest. Uh, they've talked about climate change and how it affects 
how the soldiers and sailors can operate in a new and different environment. They talk about climate change as being the source of instability around the globe. And uh, social and economic instability leads to crisis, and often crisis leads to regional instability, and sometimes Americans are, are pulled into that. They talk about how uh, the melting of the Arctic has opened sea lanes, which means that, uh, again, the global trade and uh, the challenges we have with some of our enemies, that's a potential source of conflict as well. So you talk to the military, uh, they'll tell you, that climate change, which they accept, they build doctrine around constant change in the environment and the inevitability of future change. They build doctrine, military doctrine around it. So well, all those in government who aren't paying attention to it or ignore it, you ought to talk to the military. And if you don't believe the scientists, uh, believe those in charge of your safety and security globally. And if that can't convince you, then I guess there's no convincing. Mm-hmm. If the scientists and the military can't do it, I don't know who can Well, when we look at this disconnect, what's obvious to the military, what's obvious to a lot of regular people, again, isn't always reflected in policy. One of the fault lines where we see that is in the changing roles of state and federal government relative to one another in an environmental context, not just that context. But we see a trend of states partnering with with each other, making regional compacts. I like that. You know, I remember as governor, I like the regional compact approach toward a lot of different things. But I remember as governor working with Paris Glenn Denning. Oh, by the way, a Democrat. Oh, and for Maryland. But, you know, uh, the Chesapeake Bay is a magnificent, just a very special place on the East Coast. And you know what? 50% of the water comes flowing through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And a lot of that, those rivers and tributaries are exposed to uh, drainage from farlands. It's a non-point source solution. And we work together to uh, make some changes so that... Uh, what Pennsylvania poured into the Chesapeake Bay wasn't contributing to an increase in algae and being disruptive of the environment. So you do sit down together and decide there are mutual interests and how do you collaborate in order to advance the improvement of the environment in the region, not just in your own neighborhood. And again, I think that goes to the collective responsibility we have to enhance and improve the environment Every opportunity we get, whether you're Republican or Democrat. Yeah, so we've, we've seen that approach work in the past. We've seen the success. Where do you see the possibility going forward for states to work together on energy and climate, on the environment broadly? Well, I think it's a wonderful question, particularly as it relates to the crisis we're dealing with now with COVID-19. You know, it, it's, there are a lot of regional conversations going on. Uh, between two or among multiple governors as to how you deal with this. And maybe there's less, great lessons learned here that can be applied to other collective needs and collective responsibilities. You know, when you share the same goals, regardless of the, uh, your political registration, it is absolutely amazing what can be accomplished when people bring a desire to make a positive difference. And maybe it's just incremental, but all we need is incremental changes. And uh, after a decade or so, you see dramatic change. So I'd like to think that maybe this is a a possibility for the same governors once we get through this pandemic to refocus on whatever they view together as uh, regional uh, environmental issues. I mean, I love the model with Paris Glendening. Our our philosophies... Good man, a good Democrat. We probably disagree on a lot of things, but we really enjoyed 
working together because we knew we were advancing the common good of uh, many, many citizens of our states and those who visit the Chesapeake as well. So let's bring it all back to Pennsylvania and these themes of leadership and cooperation and the moral, ethical responsibility of stewardship. Uh, As it relates to your time as two-term governor of Pennsylvania, where you left your mark on the state and everything from trails and outdoor recreation, particularly through the uh, special funds that you were instrumental in setting up, Growing Greener in the Keystone Fund, and the list goes on. I'm curious what you would point to as your legacy, the most important contributions you made as governor. Well, I, you know, I think uh, other people are responsible for determining what your legacy is, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. I look back in response to that question in gratitude to have had the good fortune to work with people like Jim Seif and John Oliver and the men and women of their respective agencies. And by the way, a Republican House and Senate, who at least at that time understood the importance of preserving and enhancing the environment. So if nothing else, uh, maybe it was the the bridge, the glue, pulling together all those parts. They don't have to be disparate parts, but I guess I take a look at it and say, when you work together, you can just see how the impact you have on the environment, the recycling, uh, the growing greener. Uh, when we deregulated uh, electricity, we discovered that there are actually some Pennsylvanians willing to pay more for electricity when the source generate, did not generate carbon emissions. So you take that focus and that commitment and you work together to improve uh, the environment in your state. And I think we did a pretty good job and I'm proud to have been part of it. Not responsible completely for it, but part of it. Maybe pulling together the right team to get it done. That might be the great legacy. I got one more question for you as it relates to the work that we do at PAC. I know you are not just a proponent of outdoor recreation. I'm told you're also an enthusiastic cyclist and somebody likes to spend time outdoors. Can you talk about what those assets mean to you as a citizen, as somebody that partakes of trails and, and outdoor spaces, and also as you know somebody that's thinking about the Commonwealth opportunities and, and all the other things we've been talking about today? One of the great, well, the many great privileges is to serve the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania as governor. But you think about the history and you go back to when we got the charter from the king. William and Hannah Penn got the charter from the king. It was Penn's Woods. And if you're privileged as governor to drive through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania or fly over the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania or travel down the rivers of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, go fishing in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, go with your friends and go hunting in the Commonwealth, you really get a deep and profound sense of the gift, the natural gifts we had nothing to do with. The good Lord put them there. And we just happened to get the charter from the king, so it's ours. And so I would just say that I think, for me, in addition to multiple personal experiences, when you become a legislator, and I'm just focused on the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. See what you've inherited. You didn't create. You didn't create any of this. But damn it, it's your responsibility to enhance and protect it because it will be those who follow you who want to enjoy the same gifts and the same bounty of nature that was given to us several hundred years ago. So 
I just view it as implicit in your responsibility as a legislator, as a governor, as a cabinet member to do all you can to enhance it. Well, Governor, I know you've got a a busy day ahead of you, and I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk with us today. Thank you so much for being on Pennsylvania Legacies. Stay healthy, stay safe. Well, listen, I've enjoyed doing this, and I hope we haven't had a chance to do it again. God bless. Take care. Tom Ridge was the 43rd governor of Pennsylvania and currently heads the Ridge Policy Group. You can read his April 22nd op-ed in The Atlantic via a link in the show notes for this episode. Find that at peckpa.org. That's P-E-C-P-A dot O-R-G. While you're on the website, you can browse through past episodes of the podcast in the audio room. Subscribe in your podcast player of choice so you won't miss any future episodes. Be sure to follow Peck on Twitter at P-E-C-P-A and look for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council on Facebook. We'll be back in June with another Pennsylvania Legacies podcast. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and as always, thanks for listening.